Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter on television here in Utah or Idaho or parts of Wyoming, they can go to www.hotm.tv and watch it live streaming video from anywhere in the world. I was a born-again Mormon. The manuscript is available now through PDF download. You can go to the same website, hotm.tv, and you can have that book in your hands within minutes. Aletheia Ministries holds two never-denominational Bible studies every week, one in, uh, at Utah State and one at University of Utah, both on Sunday. You can get more information like how to get there, directions, things like that by going to www.calvarycampus.com for more information. On Friday, March 12th, and Saturday, March 13th, Calvary Chapel Salt Lake City is hosting a conference on Mormonism. Uh, They're calling it the Capstone Conference, and the biggest names in refuting Mormonism will be there presenting from all over the nation. Uh, I think the information that's going to be presented will blow your mind. It's free. It's going to be very informative. And it's all happening right there at Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City, on Friday and Saturday, March 12th and 13th. Go to www.capstoneconference, all one word, capstoneconference.com, for more information. I had the valued opportunity to be interviewed by John Dellen, of Mormon Stories a few weeks ago. The result is a three-part video segment available online and for free at www.mormonstories.org. Mormonstories.org. In these interviews, I was able to comfortably articulate who we are and what we think, why we do what we do, and why we do it the way we do it, and where our heart is relative to ministry. John is a very gracious host and now friend, uh, but he does not avoid hitting on some very hard topics. So, so far this work has opened up the hearts of many people, LDS, to the ministry who just not have, who have not liked us very much until they saw that. So check it out, www.mormonstories.org. Now, as a result of this interview, a number of criticisms have come up from... Uh, some people on the Christian side of the fence regarding my comments. Let me address a few of them here. The first criticism was my stance on biblical inerrancy. I stated in that interview that I believe the Bible to be infallible, meaning it will never, ever fail in bringing anyone or all to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and teach them how to live as Christians. I explained in the interview that the original Bible manuscripts were inerrant, without error, but that we would be incorrect to think that the translations we have in our hands today are word perfect. Epistemus verba is the big word they use. No, they're not. I mean, if we took the King James Bible today that we have in our hands and someone translated it into Swahili, I believe the Holy Spirit would help them. I believe that the book would be infallible. I think it would serve all of its purposes in bringing people to Christ and helping them understand uh, who he is and what it means to be a Christian. But I do think that it would probably have some error in there somewhere. Now, This does not take away from the word of God in the least. I said in those interviews that there 
are a couple. We're talking about 99.9% correct. There are some things. There's a couple dates, there's a couple names, and there's a couple time things that are questionable. This does not in any way mean that I don't think the Bible can be trusted, that I don't think it's God's word. Uh, it, it, is, it is a miraculous book, having come through as it, as it did. But uh, some people want me to say that the NIV that I hold in my hands or the New American Standard or the King James Version is uh, uh, Epistemus Worba is word for word, syllable for syllable, absolutely perfect. And I just don't believe that's what the Christian core Christian believers believe. They believe the original manuscripts are perfect and the Bibles we have today are completely sufficient. Now, I don't think, there, I don't think we can really point out maybe two or three or five things that would even be questionable, and they're not doctrinal in the least. But nevertheless, to say perfection, I just don't think I can say that. If I'm wrong, call and tell me. Second, I was criticized for saying that a Latter-day Saint can be saved even with their present knowledge, understanding, ontological knowledge of the makeup of Jesus. I was. Uh, others have been and others will continue to be. When I came to know the Lord at the side of the road, or actually a little bit later on that day, but when I came to understand who he was, I was still under the impression of a lot of mixed up ideas about who Jesus was. I still had a lot of my facts messed up in my head about his identity, but it's not facts that save us. It is our faith in him, in God, uh, who saves in his blood, in Jesus' blood that saves us, the facts will follow. So again, folks, relax a little bit, you know? Um, then there was my conversation about whether someone had to know the name Jesus to be uh, saved in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I emphatically stated, emphatically stated, over and over like we do on the show, there is no other way uh, then by Jesus and Jesus alone that someone may be saved. No other name by which we may be saved. But when does that name come to the mind completely of a person who was saved? I mean, what is his name, folks? Is it Jesus? Is it Jesus? Is it Iesus? Is it uh, Joshua? Is it Jehovah? Is it Yeshua? Is it God? I believe... If a person in the Congo looks up to the sky and cries out Umba, which might be translated as God in Condoleez, and says, Umba, save me. I need you in my life. That it is in and through the grace and shed blood of Jesus Christ that that Congonian would be saved. But, and eventually every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ. But I just was not dogmatic in saying that a person had to know that Anglicanized name Jesus in order to be saved. There are certain hills um, on which to die and fight for the faith. There are battles from which we cannot run. But I think it's good to give up on a little dogmatism. I am not relativist. I am not ecumenical. I am not saying broad is the way. But... Uh, I think we can remove some ugliness in order to open the door, especially to the audience with which we're talking to, preach, teach, and share love uh, through Jesus. And uh, with that, let's have a prayer. Lord, 
uh, I, I need you greatly. We all need you greatly in our lives. And so people who tune in are seeking to know you or seeking to find truth. People in our live audience and at home and everybody wants to know who you are if they can. And we know they can, Lord, through faith. So we pray you'll be with us in the message tonight. We pray you'll be with our volunteers, with the ministry, with the things you are doing, and that we will step aside so you can work. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, in this year's uh, presentation of biblical topics, alphabetical topics, dealing with Mormonism in the Bible, we come to the Book of Mormon. Now, remember, this year we are taking the Bible and we're using it to show that Mormon doctrine and their teachings are another gospel, um, or a corrupted gospel, as Paul says, actually. With this in mind, I'm not going to discuss the problems found within the Book of Mormon itself, its plagiarisms, its anachronisms, its origins. These were all covered in show 18 back in 2006 and in shows 12 through 20 in 2007. Tonight, we're going to examine the biblical references the Latter-day Saints use in their efforts to prove that the Bible actually spoke of the Book of Mormon in its text. This is important because if the Bible truly does support the fact that there was an inspired book called the Book of Mormon coming forth from God, we ought to run, run and be baptized into that church tonight. But why haven't the majority of Christian pastors, scholars, commentators, linguists, historians discovered these verses in the Bible to which the LDS say the Book of Mormon is proven true? Because the scholars know that the proof texts that they are using uh, are incorrect and they know what the Bible actually says. And so will you tonight if you listen to these four instances that the missionaries, even the LDS apostles will use to say, see, even the Bible is talking about our Book of Mormon. Specifically, we're going to look at four Bible references. Uh, Isaiah 29, 1 through 4. Isaiah 29, 11 through 12. Ezekiel 37, 16 through 17, and 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 2. So get your Bibles out or get a piece of paper, mark these verses, take some notes so you can understand what is really being said when you have a discussion with your LDS family friend or missionary about the topics. Now, before we get into these verses themselves, I want to throw out a challenge. And I'm going to use our studio audience to help me out here. I want to bet that they can give me some wild, made-up religious belief, and by next week, I can take the Bible and prove at least by one passage, if not more, that will support their wild, made-up, false belief. They'll name it, and next week, I, I will use the Bible errantly to show how uh, I can support it. So we're going to open up tonight's program with this challenge. And I think we have somebody out here. They're going to come forward right now boldly. Uh, they're full of courage. And, and they're going to come and look in the camera. And now you got to understand, so this is clear. This is Dave. This is not set up. He came up with this in his own mind. Dave has something he wants to present as truth. He knows it's not. And the next week, I'm going to show you how we can twist the Bible to prove it as Dave. Uh, tell the studio audience what it is, the, the magical, errant, twisted belief you're going well, to give me. Sean, it, it, I hear it a lot that Jesus is married, was married. Okay. And, uh, you want biblical proof for that? I need some biblical proof. All right. So next week, tune in, and we're, I'm going to show you errantly how you can use the Bible to prove that. 
Round of applause for Dave. Thank you. Thank you. I guess round of applause. All right. Let's go to the first Bible passage. The LDS say speaks of the Book of Mormon, and that's in Isaiah 29, 1 through 4. Apostle. Apostle. Russell M. Nelson wrote in, in November 2007, quote, How do scriptures of the Restoration clarify the Bible? Many examples exist. I will cite a few, beginning with the Old Testament. He says, Isaiah wrote, and then he quotes Isaiah 29, 1 through 4, which says, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise forts against thee, and thou shalt be brought down, and thou shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit, out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Those are the four verses. Speaking of these passages, Apostle Nelson goes on and says, quote, could any words be more descriptive of the Book of Mormon? Coming as it did, quote, out of the ground to whisper out of the dust to people in our day. So they quote four passages. He uses two sentences, out of the ground, whisper out of the dust to people in our day. All I have to say is, you've got to be kidding me, Apostle Nelson. I mean, let's take this text that Nelson uses it and examine it soundly. It's going to be a little dry because we're going to do some scripture talking now, but you can handle it because this is going to help you as you talk. First and foremost, we can't forget that the Old Testament was written by, for, to the children of Israel. It is their history, their covenant with God, and it applies to them, not Mormonism uh, or Mormons. Just look at the first verse of Isaiah 29.1. It says, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill their sacrifices. Who or what is Ariel? It is the city where who dwelt? It says right there, where David dwelt. And the city that this speaks of is Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of peace. Did David ever dwell on, in a city on the American continent? Did David ever dwell in, say, Missouri? No. Isaiah here called Jerusalem Ariel, which in all probability means the hearth of God. And it was only in Ariel where God's hearth existed, the altar where sacrifices were being burned and offered. And it was also the place where God was going to pour his wrath out. So Ariel itself would act as an altar, would seem like an altar because of the bloodshed and the fire that was going to come up uh, because of the persecution that hit Ariel. And fall it did. What Isaiah was saying here is Jerusalem, though, though it was presently offering sacrifices, would soon become like an altar of sacrifices uh, itself. Uh, 
He was telling them that the city was going to be raised. This prophecy was fulfilled when God used Shennacherib, ruler of the Assyrians in 701 BC to attack Jerusalem or Ariel with such bloodshed and fire that it seemed like it was an altar of fire. Then in verse two and three of the four that they use, God warns them through Isaiah that though they offer sacrifices, verse two, yet says God, I will distress Ariel and there shall be heaviness and sorrow and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about and will lay siege against thee with a mount and I will raise forts against thee. As a result of this devastating attack authored by God, Jerusalem would be figuratively brought down low to the ground so effectively that it would be as though it was buried. And this context brings us to verse four, which the LDS are, it's the most popular with the LDS and their missionaries and in its misapplication. It says in verse four, and thou, meaning Jerusalem, shall be brought down and shall speak out of the ground and thy speech shall be low out of the dust and thy voice shall be as of one that has a familiar spirit out of the ground and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust, okay? Bible scholar Albert Barnes, who I love, says of this passage, quote, the sense here is that Jerusalem, which was accustomed to priding itself on its strength, would be greatly humbled and subdued. Its loud and lofty tones would be changed. It would use the suppressed language of fear and uh, alarm as though it was speaking from the dust, sounding like the voice of those who pretended to have communications with the dead or a familiar spirit. Now, nowhere in scripture is the term familiar spirit good. It always refers to evil sorceries. So Isaiah is saying that Israel will be made so low that her voice will, will, will kind of mimic what the voices are of people who say they talk with familiar spirits. You know what the LDS say about that familiar spirits passage? They try and say that the Book of Mormon, which came out of the ground near Joseph Smith's home, whispering from the dust, that it would have a familiar spirit to that of the Bible. That's the connection they make in, in that passage. It's utter nonsense, okay? Now, what really is important to understand about this passage is that Apostle Nelson, so embarrassingly assigned as proving the Book of Mormon, is to look at the preceding chapter in chapter 28 of Isaiah, Isaiah verse 15. Here it is, is the reason that Jerusalem is going to get slayed as Isaiah was prophesying in chapter 29. You see, the nation of Israel made some sort of pact with darkness, and they believed that this pact would protect them from what Isaiah was telling was going to happen in chapter 29. So in 28, it says, verse 14, Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people, which is in Jerusalem, because ye have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with hell we are at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. 
For we have made lies our refuge and understood falsehood have we hid ourselves. From these verses, we have a clear understanding of what Isaiah was saying in chapter 29 and why. The children of Israel had made a covenant with death and a pact with hell, and they thought that the overflowing scourge was not going to hit them. But Isaiah 29 verse 1 through 4 tells us otherwise. God let the overflowing scourge fall upon them so furiously in 701 BC that the hands of the, at the hands of the Assyrians that they were decimated from the earth. This has nothing Nothing at all to do, nothing with the Book of Mormon, even though a man who calls himself an apostle says it does. He is misleading people at best. He's deceiving at worst. Okay, then in the same chapter of Isaiah, we come to another passage the LDS used to say that the Book of Mormon is mentioned in the Bible. It's in Isaiah 29, 11 through 12, and it reads, I'm not going to read this right now. Let me just tell you the story. Martin Harris was helping Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon. And this is how the story goes. Joseph Smith wrote some characters down and Martin Harris went to Columbia University, New York City, and he meets a Dr. Charles Anton. And he takes these characters and he shows them to Anton. And Anton quotes, supposedly quotes, a passage, not even knowing it, from Isaiah that says, Uh, I can't understand these translations because I can't read a sealed book. Now, this is a rewritten history that the LDS uh, people brought forward as though it was fulfilling a prophecy in Isaiah. When Martin Harris was helping him translate this, Professor Anton denies that this conversation ever went the way Harris said, but Harris gave a report and the church uses it as a fulfillment of Isaiah. So there are several problems with the LDS using these verses in Isaiah, and let me tell you what they are. This is the passage. It says, And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. That's the whole context of the passage, okay? So what the LDS do, look at the first line in Isaiah. It says, And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed. What Isaiah is saying is that the visions that were coming to Israel were not discernible to them any longer and that these visions had become unto them sort of like a book that is sealed. They can't read it. They can't understand the visions. And, and, and because he says, this vision is come unto you as the words of a book that is sealed. This has nothing to do with a book that is sealed up uh, called the Book of Mormon. Isaiah was not any way speaking of this exchange between Martin Harrison and Professor Anthon at, at Columbia University. I mean, listen to this. Just listen to this logic. They tried to take a second-hand conversation between Martin Harris and a professor at Columbia University, twist it to make it fit some vague scripture in Isaiah, and say that this was the fulfillment of scripture, and that Isaiah was actually talking about a professor at Columbia University in New York City. And yet, LDS Apostle LeGrand Richards says that Martin Harris' talk with Professor Anthon was exactly what Isaiah was talking about. He actually said, quote, Professor Anthon did not realize he was literally fulfilling prophecy of Isaiah, end quote. 
My Lord, how can they twist the scripture like this? Just sit down and examine the, the story that Martin Harris said of the meeting uh, with Professor Anthon and then reread the passage in question. Problem number one. According to Martin Harris, Professor Anthon said the translation of the book was correct. Okay, Harris comes back and said, this professor said the translation was correct. But the Isaiah passage states that the learned could not translate the vision. Okay, there's the first problem. Problem number two, the Isaiah passage has the versions going first to the learned and then to the unlearned, neither of which could comprehend the vision. In LDS uh, presentation, the book first went to the unlearned, Joseph Smith, and then it went to the learned, Professor Anton, only to have the unlearned come back and translate it, which Isaiah never says was part of the scripture, okay? And uh, the Isaiah account tells us that the visions will be presented to the learned, and the learned will say, I can't read an unsealed book. It says nothing about a translation of anything coming forth. Reread this passage and think. All right, uh, now we come to the, the biggest one, the one they love, and that is the stick of Joseph and the twist taken out of chapter 37 of Ezekiel. And in October 1982, Apostle Boyd K. Packer said in his LDS conference, quote, the stick or record of Judah, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the stick or record of Ephraim, the Book of Mormon, which is another testament of Jesus Christ, are now woven together in such a way as you pour over one, you are drawn to the other. As you learn from the one, you are enlightened by the other. They are indeed one in our hands. Ezekiel's prophecy now stands fulfilled. Okay, so um, from what the passages from what passages in Ezekiel does Boyd K. Packer support his claim? Ezekiel 37, 15 through 17. It reads, The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel his companions. Take thee another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel his companions. Join them together into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. Taking these passages, LDS missionaries will sit down with an unsuspecting investigator, and they'll have them read those passages in Ezekiel, and they'll say this, Mr. and Mr. Investigator, ancient prophets used to write on leather or papyrus, and they would make it flat, and they would attach sticks at each end of the scroll. And then they would roll those up into a scroll of Scripture. So what these passages are saying is that God told Ezekiel to take one stick rolled up uh, and write upon it for Judah or the children of Israel, his companions. And this stick would represent the Bible, Mr. Investigator. And so the Mormon missionary would hold up a book and say, here's the one stick. And then the Lord tells Ezekiel to take another stick, write upon it on the paper between it, roll it up and uh, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, this stick, and the missionary holds up the Book of Mormon and says, this is the Book of Mormon in their hand. And then the Lord tells Ezekiel to join them into one stick. And so they take the Bible and the Book of Mormon and they hold it into their one hand. And, and the Lord says, they shall become one in thine hand. And then the missionary takes the Bible and the Book of Mormon and he puts them together and he tells the person, this is the meaning of Ezekiel 37. 
And an unsuspecting investigator in this story seems reasonable, and they buy into the uh, presentation. So what is Ezekiel 37, 15 through 17 really talking about? All you have to do is just keep reading. Just keep reading. Pass those two verses they tell you to read. It's a scary thing. It's called context. And if you do that, you understand what those verses are talking about. In so during, doing, we will clearly learn that the scripture, uh, what the scripture says these two sticks are. Okay, uh, how are we doing on time? I can't tell. Okay, uh, so let's continue and reread uh, Apostle Boyd K. Packer's use and justification of the Book of Mormon. And, um, and let's talk about this and then we'll, and we'll close. First of all, God has his Old Testament prophets doing object lessons all the time. He has them go and lay on couches on one side and then on the other. He has them go stand at gates. He has them go to cities and preach. He has them do all these things. He goes, they go to all different type of symbolic things, and this is one of the things he's doing. According to Bible expositor Charles H. Dyer, here is the setting of the verse. Ready? After Solomon died, the nation of Israel split asunder in 931 B.C., the southern kingdom was known as Judah because Judah was its larger tribe and because the country was ruled by a king of that tribe. That's found in 1 Kings 12. The northern kingdom was called Israel or sometimes Ephraim, as in Hosea 5.3, because Ephraim was the strongest and most influential tribe and or because the first king of Israel, Jeroboam I, was an Ephraimite. Okay, these kingdoms were separately taken into captivity with Israel being taken by Assyria in 722 BC and Judah taken into Babylonian exile in 605, 597 and 586 BC. These passages clearly depict one nation represented by a stick for Judah of the southern kingdom and the other nation represented by a stick of, uh, of Ephraim for the northern kingdom to be joined together in the prophet Ezekiel's hands together. How can I say this? I'm going to spin right now and read what the scripture says. This is what the uh, LDS used. The word of the Lord came unto me saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak to thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what meaneth by these things? Verse 19, Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and they will make one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will make the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation, listen, in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all, and there shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. This is completely talking about the, the two nations of, of Israel. It's talking about these two uh, uh, nations that were kingdoms that were divided and put into exile. It has nothing, nothing to do with the Book of Mormon. And you have apostles, men who call themselves apostles of the Lord, saying that is what it's talking about. 
Open up your Bible. Go to chapter 37 of Ezekiel. Don't believe me. Read that chapter. Just read the whole chapter. And then you go and look at what your apostles have told you that means. If they lie to you about that, what else have they lied to you about? Look at the history of it. You'll see. Finally, the LDS missionaries often use 2 Corinthians 13.1.2 to show the need for the Book of Mormon. 2 Corinthians 13.1, Paul references Jewish law located in Deuteronomy 17.6, which says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. The missionaries say, Mr. Mr. Investigator, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. You have the Bible. That's just one witness. Mr. Investigator, you also need the Book of Mormon. That's at least two witnesses to confirm your truth. Um, first of all, the Bible has dozens and dozens of witnesses as it's a compilation of inspired writings and, uh, and many books. Secondly, Paul is warning the people of Corinth. He's saying, listen, if you don't get out of your sin and repent and change, I'm going to bring witnesses. And in the mouth of these witnesses, you are going to face the law of Jewish legislation and you will be found guilty by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Again, nothing to do with the Book of Mormon. Folks, the way the LDS apostles say the Bible supports the Book of Mormon is akin to the guy who shot Reagan saying that the catcher in the rye told him to do it. It has nothing to do with it at all. There is no reference in the Bible at all for the Book of Mormon. Check yourselves and then we'll go. Let's go to the phone lines. 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. First time callers, please, uh, please turn your television sets down. And instead of going to a break, I'm going to do a commercial. Just one second. Stay with me. I got to drink this. Now, people <clears throat> often ask me where I get my glamorous looks from and things like that. And uh, it's really hard for me to explain, but I'm going to do it right now. Every morning, I drink this stuff. And what I just poured into this glass was uh, the equivalent of 50 cups of green tea. It's called Green Tea HP. And I get it from my local drug dealer, herbal provider guy. <clears throat> He's great. He's not a drug dealer. This is really, really healthy stuff, and it gives you a lot of energy. And since I've been drinking it, <clears throat> I have stopped drinking 75 uh, big gulps of Diet Coke a day, and I only drink 35 now. <laughs> so there's 14 different flavors in this, and the antioxidant value and the nutritional value is phenomenal. You can get this stuff. From David, you call the business at 801-347-6482, 801-347-6482. He, he's in the Grand Teton Mall in Idaho Falls, a good friend of mine, great product. Mm. I feel better already. No, it really is good. I drink it every morning. I love it. I support it. So we're just doing that little uh, plug for that because I stand by it completely. All right. Let's go to Daniel in Mesa, Arizona. He's a first-time caller. Daniel, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, I just had a question real quick and a little bit of exposition, and then I'll hang up and you can answer. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the church in Salt Lake and Provo, and I grew up in the Church History Museum because my mom worked there most of her life when I was growing up uh -huh. in, in Utah. And she told me that she had seen some rubbings of the plates, and I wanted to know what you had to say about that. I think it's folklore. 
Now, All right. now, but, now but let me say this. I do believe that there could be some type of uh, rubbings that came forward somewhere and that they could have something like that. But I think uh, in the end, they are not rubbings from the golden plates that an angel Moroni took back into heaven. I think they're just something that someone made up. Okay. Cool. Thanks, man. All right. That's it? Yeah, that's it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Mike wants to know about all the people who have never heard of Jesus. What happens to them later? Do they go to hell? Can you explain? Okay. That's Mike. That's Mike's question. I think I just touched on that. We have a show where we talk about how God uh, presents his law to us. He presents it through nature. Seven ways we talked about through scripture. And, and just let me be perfectly clear. There is no other way by which anybody can get to the Father but by faith in the blood of the Son, saved by grace. Now, how that applies, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. I believe that there are people who don't know the name Jesus, who might have lived at a time and a place where that wasn't given to them, who acquiesce their will and their selfishness to a higher power, and God, Jesus, stepped into their life and saved them without knowing that name. But I think in, in this day and age of modern technology, of missional work going out forever and ever, I don't think that's the case. But nevertheless, that is what I believe. And I think that scripture supplies a number of ways that God is constantly calling to all of us. I would like to say we don't look for the exception. We just look for the general rule. It seems like people love to just wonder about that question, all the while never having received Jesus themselves. You know, when they know about him, and they hear about him. So, and they always want to know that exclusionary kind of topic. Well, God is a great God, and he is not unjust, but, and that's why he sent his son. So I, I leave it to him to decide those things, but I do believe that God reaches to all people at all times and all places through many different ways, and it is only by Jesus that they are saved. Okay, let's go to Dan in Boise, Idaho. Uh, might be LDS. Dan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. Uh, good to hear from you. I've been a avid watcher for the past six months, awesome. and I just discovered you one day, and you've really changed my life. Wow. Praise so God, man. I really appreciate you. Okay, my three things are, uh, we've been a member of the church for like 30 years, and I've been there for about an hour in the past six. You, be, you be, did what? I said I've only been going for about an hour for about the past six, in, in about the past six years. Okay. Uh, it's put a big strain on my marriage. Uh, I am actively seeking a new church at this point, and I don't know where to go. Um, I have a problem with the doctrine from A to Z. One of my problems is, and one of my questions to you is, with the word of wisdom, I personally don't feel like I'm going I'm to go to hell for drinking a cup of coffee. Yeah. Okay, my second, my second comment is um, for the temple garments, which I don't know whether everybody knows what they are. I call them the magic underpants. Yeah. And, and I have a problem with that, so that's why we'll never see me again. Uh, they've been actively seeking my wife to return. My wife hasn't gone. Uh, they kind of won't leave her alone. And... Uh, they have gotten no tithing from me. That's why they haven't bothered with me. Yeah. So the three questions are one about coffee and going to hell, two about the garments. Right. And three is summary uh, comment or statement is what? Uh, is that um, my, it's put a big strain with my wife and I. Okay. 
and we're actively, you know, I personally am actively seeking a new church, but I don't know where to go. Okay. In, in the Boise area, I don't know the churches there, but I can tell you this. You, you go to several or many. There are a lot in Boise. And, and find one that one teaches the Bible. If you walk into a church and they're talking about, uh, you know, uh, how to overcome, how to do an exorcism, and it's not from the Bible, or, or, or they're holding snakes, or something really wild, you might not want to start with that. You might want okay. to go to a place that teaches the Bible, and a lot of churches, I know I'm going to get some heat for this, but a lot of really good Bible teaching churches are Calvary chapels. I say that because I came from them, and I know that they do believe in teaching verse by verse, so I like Calvary chapels. That's one okay, thing. Okay, we, we have one of those here. Okay, good. Secondly, coffee in hell, uh, no. I, I, I just don't believe that. I think if Jesus were alive, he might even have a cup of coffee himself. Uh, I don't know that, Jesus, but I, I would suggest it. I do know, however, that he would drink. Just kidding. Uh, now, uh, the undergarments. Um, you know, I, uh, what can you say? Uh, don't wear them. Uh, if you don't believe, don't wear them. But the biggest thing that you're talking about, Dan, is you and your wife. And all I can tell you, man, is you show her what a Christian husband is. And uh, do not show her what an angry ex-Mormon is. Show her right. what a reborn Christian believer, follower in Jesus is. And let her come to her own terms of what she wants to do with this religion as you have shown her what the love of Jesus uh, does for you in your life. Best advice okay. I can give to you. Okay, Sean, I appreciate it. What's that? I appreciate it, and I appreciate you, and I'll keep tuning in. Thanks, Dan. God bless you. All right. Bye-bye. All right, We're going to Cole in Provo, Utah. He is LDS. Cole, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing good. Hey, I've watched your, couple, I've watched your show a couple of times. Mm -hmm. um, I was just kind of curious of what you guys believe. Because um, what I've noticed from watching is that mainly you kind of take Mormon doctrines, and you try to disprove them, yeah. I guess, instead of maybe teaching from the Bible, which you always say is what a church should do, right? Yeah. From the Bible. I was kind of curious why, why it is you go about doing that. Yeah, it, because you've only seen a few shows, uh, your understanding's uh, really understandable. What we do, Cole, is uh, this show, this show itself, is to compare yeah. and contrast Mormonism with biblical Christianity. That's the purpose of the program. So okay. when, when we're at, for instance, when we teach Bible study, it's teaching through the Bible. But this show is specifically to the LDS because we're in an LDS community, because the religion has so many fingers out in the public, because it is striving to be called Christian itself, we try to show how Mormonism is not biblical Christianity. It's not Christianity at all. And so that is okay. the purpose of the show. Okay, well, I mean... It, it, Mormonism is Christian, but besides that, I just think it would probably be more effective for you to, to teach people from the Bible. I mean, you have are, a good. Are you really time. concerned about my effectiveness? No, you, I really, I really, I don't see the purpose in attacking other religions. As I mean, there's no point. We are all God's children, right? You no, we're not. Uh, we are not all God's children. <laughs> No, we're not. All you got to do is read John, uh, first chapter of John, 12, uh, 11, 12, 13, and 14, Cole, and you'll see. We are not God's children automatically. We are his creations. He loves us. That's why he sent his son. We are his, 
yeah, we are his spiritual children. No, that is a Mormon construct. Okay, that only happens when you have accepted his son by faith. And when you, okay. yeah, so the Mormon construct of who are these children coming down from heaven with spiritual bodies and him being our literal father, no matter what, is absolutely okay. not biblical. Okay, I just don't understand why it is you attack another religion when we as Mormons are also trying to come closer to Jesus Christ, trying to become more like him, become better people, as, I mean, I think you are, as yeah. a Christian trying to come closer to Christ. So why, in our, I guess, in our different ways, we're both coming closer to Jesus Christ, and I don't see what, what the purpose is in attacking the Mormon church we're trying to mock okay. it or make fun. Okay, Cole, we're going to be fair. We're going to be fair here, okay? Okay, go ahead. Okay. What did what what did Joseph Smith say God told him in the first vision? In the in the sixth version of it, fourth version God, of it. God God told him that there are parts of truth in other churches, but the fullness was not there. Okay, I want you to know that what you just said is a modern-day revision of what the official verse, first vision says. I didn't quote it. Yeah, and I'm going to quote it. And he told them that they were all corrupt and that they were an abomination and that all of their creeds and their professors of their faith were an abomination in his sight, that they draw close to them with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Okay, then if you go and read back and you read what McConkie and you read what the LDS church's position has been against the uh, church, that, that university that's down in the area where you live, Provo, Brigham Young University, the founder of that university, Brigham Young himself, he was so vitriolic against Christianity. Mormonism, had, when Mormon missionaries go to doors today, yes, and, they come up across, and they come across the Lutheran, they will say... criticize other religions. You do! our own religion. Okay, you criticize, you criticize them from the onset of your religion. You understand by that? By teaching the gospel? Jesus no, Christ. by your first vision. Okay, <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know what has happened to you in your past with the Mormon church. We always go this way, don't we? Now it's my past. Pretty no, soon I we're going to be talking for, about my sin. I apologize for you being offended. Cole, I, I was not offended, church. Cole. Cole you're, being Cole, you're being presented with facts now. And right now what you're doing is you're resisting because those facts don't coincide with your nice beliefs that you have Sean, in your church today. Just, Sean, just as you know that, that there is a God, yes. because that can't be proven scientifically, right? Uh, just well, as you've been, I too know that the Joseph Smith did see God. How do you know that? <laughs> how do you know that there's a God? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said that scientifically we can't prove that there is a God, but that you know Joseph Smith saw God. I do know that there is a God, and then by the same way that I know there is a God, I know Joseph Smith saw God, and okay. that comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit you told you. About. Okay, now let me ask you this. Did, Mah did Muhammad see the angel Gabriel and receive the Quran, the most perfect book on the face of the earth? Did Muhammad? Yeah. I have not received that answer. Okay, what about so those who not? have? Those that have, then they believe that way. And, and I respect their belief. And you respect that. So where they exactly. say, now wait a minute, Cole, let's just stay on track. So in your beliefs, as a Latter-day Saint, uh, belonging to a church that says they're the only true church on the face of the earth, and you have to receive their ordinances in order to live with God again, you are saying as a member of that church that you fully embrace and respect a, a person who is Islam, 
and their belief that Muhammad received the book that is the most correct book, and their I way is just as good. Their belief is their I belief just their belief is their Do belief I say that they are true or that they are correct. But no. their belief is acceptable to you. I respect that. Okay, let me tell you something, Paul. Their belief. Jesus did. Jesus res, did. Jesus respect everyone's beliefs. You guys. What are you trying to ask? Did Jesus respect everyone's beliefs, Cole? Jesus taught true doctrine. Did Jesus respect and he gave people? Did the Jesus respect to everyone's beliefs? He taught true doctrine and gave people the choice to choose. Did he call them vipers? Did he call them children of the devil? Did he say they were going to hell where the smoke ascends up forever and ever? On the decisions they've made. No, he based it on their beliefs. And he told them, look it, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You don't believe in me, there's nothing else. I want you to know you belong to a church. You belong to a church, Cole. I completely... Cole, you you don't completely agree. What you're doing... is the only way. Cole? Christ is the only way for salvation. Yeah, I know, and your version of salvation is very different from your version of exaltation, Cole. You're not talking to someone who hasn't been there. I was 40 I, years... I, believe, I understand, and I'm willing to answer and talk about but it. But you're not answering them correctly, my friend. You're answering them from a spot in your heart that says you really want to, to be right in this, and so you'll say whatever's necessary. I don't want to be right. I've been... I've, I've been told you're right. That witness. Okay. Just as you had at one point in your life. Okay. And somehow you got away from that. Cole, let me ask you something. You said you know that Joseph Smith has seen God, right? I do. We're just going to stop on that one. I want okay. you to go and I want you to read all nine versions of the first vision. Sure. And I want you to tell me how come in some of them he sees an angel? How come in some of them he says that he sees Jesus alone? How come in some of them there's angels there and a devil there and some there's not? How come that first vision was rewritten nine years after it supposedly happened? It was a completely different story. How come no one John, talked about a first? I, how come John, no one talked about a first you, vision for the first if twelve that, years? If I, if I go and do that for you, will you do something for me? Anything you want. Will you start teaching doctrine on TV? I'm to teaching doctrine your today, my friend. From the Bible. No, I'm what? Rather than criticize, teach people how to love. How to repent. Love, how to find Jesus Christ. love without truth is irresponsibility, Cole. And what you've shown is you're irresponsible in your facts. Uh, if I you came to me with facts, Cole, I would respect your opinion. But you came to me with this idea of love, but it's not substantiated by any fact. In fact, most of what you said about Mormonism is incorrect. You go check <laughs> that out, my friend. All right, bye-bye. Right, I don't need a... I know you don't need to because you know. I know. God bless you. We're going to Andy in Provo, who's LDS. First time caller. Andy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello. Andy, you're on the air. Hey, Sean, I got a question for you. Yeah, man. Um, how do you, or you believe in Christ, right? Yeah. Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ, yes. Okay. And uh, how do you know... I mean, you believe he, he exists and his teachings exist. How do, you, how do you believe that? Like, how do you know that? Well, uh, like, how can you, how do you, let's say, let's say, how do you prove that? How do you prove um, that God is, or Jesus Christ is, yeah. is a son of God? Pro proof is a big word, okay? But what I can say is this. First and foremost, God changed my heart. 
and by the love he put in my heart, that way I know I am his. Secondly, I trust his word. I've looked at uh, the writings of the, 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 um, the things that disparage his word, and I've looked at the facts that support his word. I trust in the historicity of his word, and so I believe what his word says. And so when I read his word and it tells me that I can know him, then I know I know that. I use that as my manual. I don't use my feelings or what other men tell me. I use his word. Okay, so basically... That way, feel, and there's one more part. There's one more part. And then the Holy Spirit, when it comes to me, and it teaches me and it tells me what I'm thinking and what I'm doing. Now, sometimes I have things come to me and they say things that I think are the Holy Spirit. And I look in the Bible and I find out, hmm, that wasn't the Holy Spirit. That was something else. And so I use the Bible to back up the promptings that the Holy Spirit gives me. Those three things mixed together, his word, the Holy Spirit, my being regenerated and having now unnatural eyes to see, that is how I know. Okay. Um, now, tell me, I mean, how do you disprove the Book of Mormon? I mean, there are how many scientists, um, researchers who have tried to disprove the Book of Mormon, um, but have yet to do so. I mean, um, if, if, it, if it were an untrue book, I think Every by morning, 200 years can too. Um, of that, I think that uh, obviously they would be able to disprove the Book of Mormon and to be able to say, well, this is false, Andy, this is false, this is false, Andy, and not... Andy, yeah. Andy, I want you to prove to me, prove to me that Santa Claus is not real. I can prove to you, okay, that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, as you can prove to me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, okay. I tell you what, Andy, let me disagree with you on this. You go to heaven, and you talk about the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith and temple ordinances and all the works you did, and I'll go to heaven and say, Jesus, I just believed on you and your blood. And we'll see how it works out. You're talking about trying to prove a negative. You can't prove something that didn't exist didn't exist. It's impossible, you, Andy. That's why all the... You would the, be able to disprove it then, right? But, you know, I can prove the Bible, you see. Here's the see, difference. But you can't I can't disprove the Book of Mormon. I can't disprove. I mean, during all your shows, all you do is say, "Well, this is false. This is not true. This is not true about That's, the I Book of Mormon." I don't just sit here and say this that, is, Andy. This is not. This is not right, Andy. Uh, I don't just do sit so? and go, "It's not true. It's not true. It's false. It's not." I don't do that. You have I, said that. I, I supply a lot of. I supply a lot of evidence, Andy. And but you have said the, that. The you problem, have said this is not Andy. True. This is false, Andy. The so now you're contradicting yourself, Andy. I can prove the Bible has a historicity. I can prove okay. it linguistically. I can prove it genetically. I can okay, prove so do that. all those things about in the Bible. Your shows, in your shows, Wait, I will you let me talk that. just for a second, and I'll let you talk, Go Andy. Ahead. You cannot do that with the Book of Mormon. Not one part of it. Not one part. It's fiction, like Santa Claus. The, the Bible is founded in a real place. I can go to Jerusalem. I can see the area of Golgotha. These places are real. The Book of Mormon, nothing. It's like Santa Claus. So while you might disagree with me, I give you the right to do that. We try to tell people, look, there is something far more substantive that you can hold on to that will give you truths that you can rely on. Not the imagination of some guy who said he took it from golden plates. Okay. I mean, I, I go ahead. You, you, you can keep doing that. Okay. I, I invite you to keep Thank proving... You. Proving the book or the the Bible to be the Word of God because it is, um, but to say to keep talking about the Book of Mormon and saying that is false, 
Um, you you cannot do that Andy? because obviously it has not been proven. Andy, can I give you one example of proof of falsehood? Proof? One one example? I want proof. What? Well, I mean, okay. This is an exact. This is a proof. You tell me what it means, okay? All right. You ready? Go ahead. Joseph Smith said he translated this book from an ancient record on golden plates that was written beginning 600 B.C. Within 600 to about 550 B.C., a part was written in that book on these golden plates that uses a Greek word. Now, this Greek word was not available to the writers of the golden plates. It's called an anachronism. It's impossible for them to have reached forward in time grabbed that Greek word and placed it in the Book of Mormon. Now, how does that happen? How does that word come how does, a, how does a Greek word translated from ancient golden plates, how does a word wind up in that that did not exist when those plates were supposedly written? Who says that word doesn't exist, number one? Number okay. two... They didn't... Um, number two... Okay. I mean, let's, let's, just stop, let's just stop with number one, okay? Do you realize how ignorant you are right now? It, it's like saying that the as Egyptians, wait, it's like saying the Egyptians knew the word Microsoft, all right? Or skateboard, or Slurpee from 7-Eleven. That's the comparison, okay? You oh, are yeah. being dumb, and you're dumb because you don't want to know the facts, and you don't want to know the facts because it will uproot everything you've ever been taught, and you'll be left in a void, and you are afraid of that, and you don't trust God enough to save you in that. Do you understand? Really? 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 I don't trust We God. deal with people like you all the time. What are, Look what at is, the facts. Check the facts. What is a chiasmus? Chiasmus are used in Shakespearean writings. What's a chiasmus? It's used in a, all a, over the place. You think that's think evidence of proof? That proves that the Book of Mormon is, is was written in that Because time. it's a chiasmus? It's an ancient style of writing that a man in the year 1820 could not have, could not have been able First to write. First of all... Especially with the, with the education of a 10-year-old... You have bought hook line... You have bought hook line and sinker into the full Mormon story. I feel sorry for it. UTLM.org. 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 And as we're leaving tonight, I'd like to tell you that this is sponsored by a great thing called Green Tea HP. We love you. We'll see you next week as we continue on here on Heart of the Matter. See you then.